Yeah, so when they write these, um, some of this stuff can be implemented via central banks, right, dealing with the commercial banks, and other of this stuff now has to be packaged up and turned into regulations for bureaucratic yeah. agencies to implement and then legislation right. for the policymakers to pass as law right so this is must work its right. way down to the walks to turn this stuff into actual action into policy right okay so now remember folks all this stuff has a high degree of uncertainty but in article 173 of the Fen- french law on energy transition for green growth uh, it requires financial and non-financial firms to disclose the climate-related risks they are exposed to and how they seek to manage them. <laughs> In doing so, Article 173 encourages financial sector firms to become increasingly aware of how climate change can affect their risk management process. Commercial banks and non-bank financial institutions in Bangladesh are required to allocate 5% of their total loan portfolio to green sectors. Force, it's coercion. It's forcing, Mm. it's all by force. Yeah. The role of prudent prudential policy is to mitigate excessive financial risk on the level of individual financial institutions and the system as a whole, not to reconfigure the productive structures of the economy. Oh, really? You're not reconfiguring the productive structures of the economy. You just said you're going to tax the crap out of brown assets and and penalize banks that loan the brown assets. How is that not reconfiguring the productive structures of the economy? Yeah. But they need it, it says, Jim. It says they need it to mitigate climate-related risks. All right? Yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. So this just talks about the ESG and the asset managers forcing it. They got $31 trillion under management. Um, <laughs> so go back up. Uh, uh, this just proves that you know, Larry Fink was not involved. It, it didn't come from BlackRock. Central banks and supervisors can help disseminate the, the adoption of so-called environmental, social, and governance ESG standards in the financial sector, especially among pension funds and other asset managers. It's coming from the BIS folks, not Larry Fink and BlackRock. <laughs> Right, coming from the BIS and being filtered down to people like Larry Fink yep. to implement, correct? Yep. Larry yep. being an asset manager. So they basically write the policy up at the top here, Bank for International Settlements. It trickles down through all the other organizations and then gets to the asset managers, and then they implement it. And then they force it into the companies, as we talked about in, I think, episodes 122 and 124. Uh, exactly right. how they then go force it into these companies by having the ability to threaten, you know, the, the CEO being fired or taking over uh, board seats on the, the board of directors. And then they force all of this, uh, all of this policy into place. Right. So they write here in the, in a context of prolonged period of low returns on traditional safe assets or even negative yields on, on a significant portion of government fixed income instruments. Think about that, negative yields on government bonds. The requirements of liquidity, return, and sustainability safety need to be gauged against the properties of these new instruments. The eligibility of green bonds as a reserve asset will depend on several evolving factors, such as their outstanding amount and their risk-return profile. So what they're basically saying is, look, banks, if you issue a whole lot more green bonds, 
we will then have the central banks become buyers of those green bonds. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Especially just... when they blow up, like in the mortgage crisis, when the mortgage-backed securities blew up and went to wor- became worthless, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, went into these banks, call it Bank of America at, at all, and they paid for those mortgage-backed securities 100 cents on the dollar that were currently worth one. <laughs> they're gonna they're telling the banks go ahead and issue all these green bonds if they don't perform don't worry about it we got your back mm-hmm. yeah and just so people know too they use the same tactics just going back to that larry fink point they use these banksters use the same tactics uh, when they're hijacking a country and a country's resources, as they do when they go in and they take over these major corporations, it's just, it's just the economic yep. terrorism, uh, uh, you know, methods that they use to go in and hijack these entities in these countries. Right. Right. By accepting potentially lower financial returns in the short run to ameliorate longer-term social and environmental results. Okay, so they're telling you that the rates of return on these green bonds might be lower. But in a previous document, we pointed out that uh, they had this table where they, they, sh- they proved, based on their modeling, that green bonds had a higher rate of return and lower volatility than traditional bonds and government bonds. Mm-hmm. Again, which is it? Well, they cover all the bases, I think. They color bo- cover both ends of the spectrum exactly keep going they should actually have trump they should have trump read this into an audiobook it'd be great like jim is an awesome guy but he's one of the dumbest stupidest people i've ever met so stupid so smart (laughs) so intelligent so ugly so beautiful so incredible so ridiculous that's basically (laughs) what they do here all right read my uh my note there it says increase the cost of borrowing money for brown companies and lower the cost of borrowing for green companies. That's what you were just talking about. Yep. Uh, All right, folks. So we are. The main uh, challenge in the short run with regard to climate change is not the cost of credit of green projects, but their insufficient number in the first place. <laughs> Don't worry that it costs eight trillion dollars to build one one power plant. <laughs> Don't worry that we don't have enough of them. It's <laughs> uh, fantastic. Let's stop right here. At Four point three. Okay. And here we go, folks. The title of four point three: Coordinating Prudential Regulation and Monetary Policy with Fiscal Policy, the Green New Deal, and Beyond. Right. And this was where was this one 2020? Yes. Okay, this one was 2020. And this this is what we yeah. were talking about in the last show, I think. Just reminding folks, this is this is why I think this type of information is so valuable. Just to be able to free your mind of the nonsensical WWE clown world wrestling crap that everybody gets sucked into and you end up lowering your immune systems by getting frustrated and stressed out and people are yelling about aoc and bernie sanders they did not go in a cloakroom somewhere and write the green new deal 
Like Bernie Sanders no, did not no. break out a pad. He was like, oh, AOC, we're going to sit here and we're going to write down the Green New Deal. That's what we're going to do. Like that did not happen. That did not happen. They are agents of the banksters. No, instead what happened is they got in a little room and they were they were talking about what can we do for the climate and AOC's dancing the music and she goes, I got it. We got to call it the Green New Deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Right, Greta Thunderbird yeah, no, not did not write this down uh, with a crayon in her coloring book. <laughs> no, no. That's and when you trying. see this stuff, you realize everybody in D.C. is playing a role. Exactly. And like you said, they can take this information and this stuff and they can pass it down. Like Bernie Sanders or AOC didn't necessarily go to a meeting at the Bank for International Settlements. These policy papers get packaged up and trickled down. And by the time they get to those people, they're being handed a one page memo with the talking points for whatever it is that they're told they're going to support, whatever they're going to say about it. And that's it. That's all they know. That's that's how it works. And the top of the parties are are basically like the casting directors who's going to play what role of all this crap right yeah it's perfect they're the casting directors and in there i used to talk about uh, a <laughs> congressman with their uh chief of staff or their campaign manager and then the staff around them and the staffers they have they are the actor and around them is the production they have a producer they have a director they have the makeup person and everyone sitting yeah. around there is their team they are they just happen to be the wrestler they're the wrestler they got chosen for the part because they're good at playing that part right Right. Shall we stop here? What's that? Shall we stop here and pick back up on the next episode? Uh, next show? That, that's up to you. I got 19 minutes left on the clock to get to two hours. You think ah, we'll okay. keep, keep rolling? Okay. So, yeah, we'll keep rolling then. All right. So, uh, I didn't the know, public uh, sector is usually in a better position to fund investments in R&D for early stage technologies with uncertain and long-term returns. <laughs> you have InQtel, one of my favorite. The CIA's yes. venture firm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. Now that's been and anyone who listens to this show knows almost behind every single tech company and every mad scientist Frankenstein experiment out there than the so-called private sector, I always find InQtel behind it. And there are so many of these uh, venture capital firms that get into these tech companies that are all partnered up with InQtel. Uh, I just covered a guy, Ted Schlein, the other day who sits on um, – he, he came in with his company and led the Series B funding for a company doing AI uh, like personalized puppets and everything. Ted Schlein is on the mm-hmm. board of trustees of InQtel, and he sits on the board of Homeland Security and the board of the NSA. <laughs> and you're sitting here, this guy's throwing his money around behind all these tech companies, like on behalf of the yeah, government. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. All right, I'm going to continue reading here. Sustainable public infrastructure investments are also fundamental as they lock in carbon emissions for a long time. They can provide alternative means of production and consumption. <laughs> There's that, that phrase again, uh, which would then enable economic agents, whatever that means, economic agents, <laughs> to change their behavior. I guess that's people. They don't want to say people. We're, we're now economic agents. <laughs> economic agents. Yeah, change their behavior more effectively in response to a carbon price. What's that sentence say, folks? Let's drive up the cost of carbon 
and reduce the options for carbon in terms of transportation, and we'll change people the way people behave, even if they disagree with us. Yeah. Uh, so they continue. Indeed, carbon prices alone may not suffice to shift individual behavior and firms' replacement of physical capital towards low-carbon alternatives until infrastructures suited for alternative energies are in place. For instance, building an effective public trans transit system may be a, a precondition to effective taxation of individual car use in urban areas. Mm. Warning, warning, red lights should be flashing, bells, alarm bells should be going off. What did that just say? Taxation of individual car use in urban areas. Yeah, that all ties is into that, that 15 minutes. Is it a mileage tax? Yeah, that's like the 15-minute city stuff that we were looking at. So basically, yeah. but, but they're saying, don't worry. They have to put an effective public transportation system into place before they're going to start whacking you for all those excessive taxes because they have to give you the alternative, which is to ride on the solar panel train first. <laughs> right. But right around it town is noteworthy. On, on the windmill scooter. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is noteworthy that under this approach, government action would not seek to manage climate-related risks optimally, but rather to steer markets in broadly the right direction. See, that's the most contradictory sentence ever, right? So government action would not seek to manage climate-related risks, but they're going to steer you. <laughs> in broadly the right direction so they're going to be managing it what like, they're what? saying what they're saying is that the climate really isn't going to blow up the planet we just need you to do what we want you to do <laughs> yeah it's crazy but then government's not going to do it but they are going to do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and this will potentially create millions of jobs that could compensate for those that might be lost due to changes in labor markets caused by technological progress, which is the fourth industrial revolution. Exactly. And then that's why, like you pointed out, and it's true, you know, World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, who wrote fourth industrial revolution the book in 2016 they are the chamber of commerce that's basically the the connective tissue between the public and private sector and they are the marketing arm they put out all this marketing material uh for the public and private sectors to use to push fourth industrial revolution stuff which is just the bridge between what they call the third industrial era and the fourth industrial era. The fourth industrial era is all this coming technocracy, CBDC system, metaverse, all this kind of nonsense. Yeah. So this is interesting. So the, they write here, the Bank of International Settlements writes, the key question that has arisen with regard to fiscal policy is that of how governments could fund such investments and what kind of policy mix this could entail. Reinvesting the nature of the interactions between or revisiting the, the nature of the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy is precisely what has been suggested by some proponents of the Green New Deal in the United States, uh, which partly relies on modern monetary theory, or MMT, also known as neo-charlatism. <laughs> One key argument of MMT is that currency is a public monopoly for any government. I like the term monopoly uh, <laughs> when it's related to currency. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 
hopefully people can put the two and two together there. <laughs> as long as it issues debts in its own currency and maintains floating exchange rates. Well, a lot of these southern hemisphere countries are, have debt not in their own currency. Okay, so we continue. Following the, the, that reasoning, the sovereign could use mo money creation to achieve full employment or a climate-related objective by straightforward financing of economic activity. In other words, print hmm. the money. Uh, the obvious risk of inflation can be addressed subsequently by raising taxes hmm. and issuing bonds as a policy goes to remove excess liquidity from the system. A government that, by definition, issues its own money cannot be forced to default on debt denominated in its own currency, which is why the Federal Reserve will never go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. The major underlying assumption is therefore that of a senior seniorage uh, without limits. Governments can incur deficit spending without limits other than those opposed by biophysical scarcity without automatically generating inflation. <laughs> this is great. So is it, which is it? Bank of International Settlements, is the temperature going to create, cause the inflation, or is it the money printing? I don't know, but I think at some point we're going to have to make like a board game, like a Monopoly-type game called Climate Change Hustle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is a great educating, like 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 an uh, educational game for children that I think should be part of like a homeschool curriculum. Like, we're kids, we're going to play the Climate Change Hustle today. <laughs> Yep. We uh, each of you are each going. of you starts off the game with twenty five carbon credits. Now let's see how rich you could become at the end of this. Oh, this is this is nice. So financing the transition to lower carbon economy with public debt could build greater social consensus for eventually accepting carbon taxation. <laughs> They are telling you where they're going. They're telling you what the plan is. Yeah. Yes, they are. And, hey, and right here, I pointed this out on the show. It's good. It's, it says uh, this type of fiscal stimulus may help create the necessary new science, technology, engineering, math, STEM jobs in the new green industry services and infrastructure. I pointed out this is why there was such a big push for STEM over the last 20 years, because they were creating yep. all the worker bees that were going to go out into the workforce and help them build this techno uh, mm -hmm. technocracy. Unfortunately, that's mm -hmm. what has happened. That's why there was such a big push telling you to teach your kids to be computer programmers and get into AI and machine learning and servers and all this stuff because they needed the worker bees to help them build this uh, slave planet system. Yep. Keep going. All right, we're going to keep going, ladies and gentlemen. We're on page 67. We actually did good. We did 50 pages today. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not yeah, bad. Yeah, keep going. Welcome to Jim's no. Masterclass on the Bank for International Settlements <laughs> <laughs> and the Climate Hang Change on. Hustle. Scroll back up. Okay, so this says here, um, the sober assessment of international cooperation is that there has been uneven progress so far in mitigating climate change, 
On the one hand, collective action and stated commitments have flourished in multilateral conferences and internationally agreed commitments such as the Paris Agreement. For instance, the recently created Coalition of Finance Ministers for Climate Action and the signing of the Helsinki Principles, something else nobody voted for, <laughs> could become a critical platform to articulate the need for fiscal policy and the use of public with prudential and monetary action and international coordination. The creation of the network of, of greening the financial system is another success of such cooperation, possibly in the spirit of Bretton Woods. On the other hand, recent global debates have been dominated by a reaction against multilateralism. This mindset obviously does not help in combating climate change and delays collective action on the real problems. <laughs> Stop questioning us, do what we say, or the world's going to blow up. Yeah, and Bretton Woods, yeah, and Bretton Woods is where uh, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank came out of the Bretton Woods uh, conventions. Yeah. Now, this is great. I love yeah. this one, though. This is a, the Coalition of Finance Ministers for Climate Action. Oh, that's a great organization. Yep. The Coalition um, of Finance So it's one of Ostrom's, I guess that was a study, uh, key insights was to show that their over-exploitation of CPRs, is, which is a... Uh, burning fossil fuels in one place decreases the carbon budget available to others that's what a cpr is <laughs> is due not so much for, to the lack of property rights as often believed as to the lack of adequate governance regime regulating the use of cprs building on those insights which are increasingly being adopted with both the climate and economic community central banks along with other stakeholders i.e companies could implement a governance regime based on CPRs by one, further identifying the risk to these resources, like such as over exploitation of a carbon budget, and two, finding actions that reduce uh, climate related risk at, at the global and local levels, and three, monitoring these arrangements through the design and enforcement of rules for system stability. This implies coordination, local participation some sense of fairness and burden sharing incentives and penalties and among others you know there's one there's all one... because their model says so and their model has a high degree of uncertainty there's also something i'm noticing in here as we go through all these because you brought it up to me and like we've talked about it a lot on uh private conversations about how you said um you know, like you think that the central bank digital currency is going to take a long time to roll out and make it the only form of money, you know, on a worldwide scale. This stuff, this is why I think also you're finding so many contradictions in this. When they're putting this together, who is the clearinghouse? Like, obviously, there's a proofreader, you know, when any documents are created, there's an editor. But who is the clearinghouse that's deciding in the end that reads this and knows that all the policy initiatives, everything inside this is actually correct? I think part of what's happening here is they're just putting so much gobbledygook and garbage into these documents, and they filter them down, and they know 
that this is just going to create ultimate chaos. None of this can get implemented in any sort of order because, like you said, it con- a lot of this contradicts itself, which is going to end up being what they want in the end, like you've said to me, is that they're going to say, that's it, you damn dirty humans. You didn't comply. You didn't get this done. Now the planet's going to blow up, and so the only solution is a carbon credit, you know, CBDC-type system because I can't imagine, like, who is the clearinghouse that has... like. Who's the CEO of this project that looks at it and says, okay, this is all right. This works. It makes sense. Every manager that's going to get this, the thousands of them around the country are going to understand this and we're going to be able to implement this. Like who the, who the hell is the clearinghouse for this stuff? Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's wild. Cause none, they're also telling you in no uncertain terms. I mean, they're kind of, you know, hinting at it, right? Like, the coordination is not working. It's not working. You got everybody doing their own thing. Maybe, maybe they think in their mind moving along down the same same path, right towards the same goal. But they're not doing exactly the same like the banksters would like. Yeah, well, it's like if you came up with the most complex business model on the planet. And you wrote a 120-page document and then handed it off to your six employees and said, this is what we're going to be trying to do over the next two years. They wouldn't know what the hell you're talking about. Like, even when you read this, yeah. like, you, you, like you, you can understand a lot of it because you're putting it in context to the hundreds of other documents you reviewed. It's like me covering parts of technocracy. I can relate it back to 17 other things I've reviewed and connect all the pieces together. But who's the average, like people got to remember, these aren't uh, superhuman robots working inside these departments to get this stuff. It's a regular person that's making 60, 80, $100,000 a year that has to take this and interpret it and figure out how to turn it into regulation or policy or implement changes inside of companies. I mean, how the hell does this get implemented? It's cra- it's insanity. It's just uh, well, that's been my question all along. How do they get every country on board on the same exact path? I mean, pick a country. It could be you know Ethiopia. Their policymakers decide to go this way, and you Hungary's policymakers decide to go another way. Well, yeah, and you have to get every country and inside the country, the bureaucracy, the political, like uh, governmental bureaucracy, and then all the departments. I mean, what is there? Probably a thousand departments inside of our executive branch. I don't even know. Then on top of it, you have to get, like you said, the policymakers. In every country, there's at least like two competing parties. Right, exactly. And those people, the human beings in those those positions change. How do you get all of them in every country on board? Right. On the same path. Then, then you have to get the central bank, the commercial banks, the uh, regulated non-banks, all the different technological players and partners. Um, I mean, the easiest one to me is obviously us, the people, because if they just present you with something, eventually people will just end up using it like we're probably the easiest piece (laughs) like if all of a sudden they said open your phone the new cbdc app is there just tap it at the counter 90 percent of people are drones they're npcs they're just going to start tapping it when they go in the grocery store but getting the whole infrastructure of all these worker bees to actually build this out i i mean seriously it's crazy like i can't figure out 
just on my own, who is the person that sits there and read this and they check all the footnotes and they go, okay, this is right. This is the way we envisioned it. Like you said, the guys at the top are sort of the conceptual people, but they don't understand mm-hmm. all the nuts and bolts. But still, I mean, if you were the head of a department inside a company and underneath you, you had 100 employees and you had to hand down a directive because you're going to be doing updates on, I don't know, the company's website or something, you would write something like this. But this is so confusing. How could anyone turn this into anything realistic? 